This is the Publix Radio. I'm Luis Hernandez. You're listening to the Weekly Catch. Universities and their leaders are facing increased pressure to take a stand on political and social issues, most recently the war in Gaza. When is it time for educational institutions to be silent, and when do they have a responsibility to weigh in? We'll dig into the topic. Also, pregnancy-related deaths in the United States are soaring compared to many of our peers. What's behind it? Rhode Island PBS is launching a new documentary series that looks into the issue here in the Ocean State. And we speak with the director of a new production at Trinity Rep inspired by the real-life stories of Latinos in Rhode Island. Plus a look back on the week in politics. That and more, coming up on the Weekly Catch. Well, joining me now to kick off the year in Rhode Island politics is our own political reporter, Ian Donis. Ian, always great talking with you. Good to be with you, Lewis. All right, so Ian, President Biden this week nominated Melissa DuBose for a pending vacancy in U.S. District Court in Providence. Tell us about the significance of this nomination. Well, while we've seen a lot more diversity in some aspects of public life in Rhode Island, including the City Council and the General Assembly, the courts have really lagged behind. Former Governor Gina Raimondo made an effort to get more women and people of color on the bench. It was Raimondo who appointed, excuse me, nominated Melissa DeBose as a district court judge. She also elevated two women to the state Supreme Court. So this is kind of what some would see as an overdue effort to bring more gender and racial diversity to various courts in Rhode Island and beyond. All right. So, Ian, a complaint filed by GOP Chairman Joe Powers against House Speaker Joe Shikarchi got tossed out by the Ethics Commission and the GOP was struggling to get enough signatures to get Donald Trump on the ballot. What does all of this tell us? That the Republicans in Rhode Island continue to struggle. At last blush, it looked like Donald Trump had received enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. Those still have to be certified. But the fact that it was difficult points to a lack of GOP infrastructure. There were questions about the strength of this GOP complaint against Speaker Shikarchi from the start. He was basically exonerated under the class exemption, which holds that, uh, you know, it was on a bill to allow weddings at large farms. This would have affected more than 100 farms, so any one bill would not have had a big effect, and this bill in question did not actually pass the whole General Assembly. All right, so finally, there was more flooding in Rhode Island this week, and I'm wondering, how are elected officials coping with the effects of climate change? This points to how this is going to be a bigger and bigger challenge for elected officials. While parts of Rodan have long been hit by periodic flooding, this is growing more extreme. It's taxing the state's infrastructure, and I don't think anyone has a good and immediate response for the situation. I mean, I just think we see this week a lot of crumbling roads, and it costs money to repair all that. I think the cost from this kind of thing is going to keep going up. And we as a country and a state are just beginning to wrestle with the threat of climate change. So this will be an issue for public officials and municipal and state budgets for many years to come. Ian Donis, political reporter for the Public's Radio. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, Lewis. For more politics news, you can listen to the latest episode of the Political Roundtable with Ian Donis, or you can read his TGIF column out every Friday at 4 p.m.
Should colleges and universities take a position of neutrality on social issues? Or are there times when these institutions and their leaders have a responsibility to weigh in? Since the Israel-Hamas war began in October, many college students around the country have called for their schools to take a position on the conflict. And two Ivy League presidents have resigned after criticism of their testimony in congressional hearings on anti-Semitism on their campuses. Joining me now to talk about this issue of institutional neutrality, Jamie Calvin, Chicago-based journalist, author, and human rights activist. Jamie, thank you so much for the time. Good to be with you. Also, John Tomasi, president of the Heterodox Academy and former professor of political science at Brown. John, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. I wanted to ask and start both of you on this. Is Define for me institutional neutrality at universities. What exactly does that mean? John, I'll start with you. So there's this question about what universities function are. What is that universities are for in society? And on one view, the university is to be a place that searches for knowledge and hosts people who search for knowledge. On that view, universities are a space that tries to encourage the widest possible range of viewpoints being expressed. Another view is that universities have an important role to play as leaders in society, and they should take positions as universities on controversial topics to show the way. Neutrality takes the former view. Neutrality, advocates of neutrality, like, like me and my organization, Heterodox Academy, we think universities should refrain from making statements on political issues so that they can leave the space open for their students and professors to voice different opinions and have that tumultuous quarrelsome conversations about issues emerging from campuses as our contribution to society. Jamie, as well, the same question to you. Define what you think institutional neutrality is. Yeah, I, I agree with John's, with John's formulation. I would only add that I think there's something misleading about the word neutrality, and I'm not sure what would be an appropriate alternative, maybe institutional silence. I would also add that I think the principle is best thought of as a strong presumption rather than a rigid absolute, so that it's completely appropriate to keep revisiting the question in, in light of different issues that arise. The Calvin Report was published in 1967 at the University of Chicago. The full title uh, is The Report on the University's Role in Political and Social Action. It was put together by a faculty committee led, Jamie, by your father, free speech expert Harry Calvin. A lot of supporters of institutional neutrality cite this report, but just briefly, how do you interpret the report? What was your father's intent on this? You know, it's worth a moment of time travel to remember just what a turbulent, um, and, and I think there was a, a, a general sense of almost apocalyptic society careening out of control in the late 60s. We were in the Vietnam War. Vietnam War, the draft, um, you know, the the civil rights movement uh, evolving in multiple directions, including a kind of black resistance in er, in urban America. And I think there was the deepest commitment to robust dissent. You know, this was not a self-protective strategy with respect to the university. It was really reaching for an understanding in a very difficult and turbulent time for the core functions of the university, the essential mission of the university. And I think some of that, you know, the history has been uneven since then, 
sometimes it feels like you know the administration in Chicago and elsewhere uses the Calvin Report as a kind of shield against having debates that are necessary. But I think that was the initial energy, was really this commitment to dissent. When we talk about this idea, again, of institutional neutrality or silence, does that mean deciding not to question the political ideologies of the donors of the university? That's a huge one. You know, so I think we, we have to really contend with a sort of political economy of higher education. Uh, we talk about academic freedom, you know, and, and sort of a traditional discourse. Well, now we're confronting the degree to which donors condition the realities of the freedom of faculty and, and student students hinges on the donors. And, and look, John, years ago, you received criticism, your time during uh, Brown, when you were running the Political Theory Project, because one of the donors was Charles, the Charles Koch Foundation. My view is that universities that claim to advocate viewpoint diversity should be able to demonstrate that by showing that they can attract donors from a, a, a variety of ideological viewpoints. Neutrality, in my view, a commitment to neutrality is a way of saying donors are not going to control what we do. We're not going to allow any one ideology or any one group to determine what our policies are at the university. Let me finish with this. Jamie, I'm going to start with you. I'm wondering what you say to people who are asking these universities to take a position on the Israel-Hamas war, in part because of the power held by these institutions, like Brown, like Harvard. What do you say to them? First, I don't think they have significant power in that respect. I think it overstates the power of those voices, and it underestimates the cost, you know, the institutional cost for all the reasons we've been talking about. And I, I think this has been a devilishly difficult moment for um, institutions and, and those in leadership roles, Ex extraordinarily difficult. What needs to be better understood, better expressed, John expresses it, it eloquently, is the dignity and the 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 gravity um, and the generosity, the generative quality of university silence when it's understood as creating space for the an endless diversity of voices. But I believe nothing would be gained by this university president or that university president um, uh, crafting a statement about the current war. Yeah, and John, same to you. I mean, if you speak to those students, those faculty, those folks who are saying the university needs to get involved, whether it's divesting of donors or speaking up about an issue, what do you say to them? I say they misunderstand and underestimate where the power of the university lies. The university's power is not to be lined up with, it's not, not found to be found in lining up and adding their voice to a petition that many other different kinds of groups are signing. Rather, the power of universities is deeper and slower. It's a power of conversation. It's a power of, in, of discovery. It's a power of diverse viewpoints coming together in serious ways, searching for the truth. I think there's far too much conformity within universities. I think we fail ourselves in our society in a bunch of ways by uh, allowing this conformity to, to, to exist. But the potential power of universities is shown by their willingness to be quiet as universities so that their students and their faculty can speak out in all their different voices. Jamie Calvin, a Chicago-based journalist, author, and human rights activist, and John Tomasi, president of the Heterodox Academy and former professor of political science at Brown. Gentlemen, I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank Louis. you. Thank you, Jamie. 
And we'll be back with more from the Weekly Catch after this break. Starting this month, the Public Radio is launching a winter book club focusing on authors and stories from Rhode Island and Massachusetts. From January to March, we'll kick off each month by announcing the book and end the month with an author interview. Our author for January is Elizabeth Rush and her book, The Quickening. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or The X at The Publix Radio to follow along and share your comments. Learn more at thepublicsradio.org slash book club. This is The Publix Radio. I'm Luis Hernandez. You're listening to The Weekly Catch. Pregnancy-related deaths in the United States are 10 times higher than in many of our peer countries, and the outlook is even worse for Black and Latino women. A new documentary from Rhode Island PBS called The Risk of Giving Birth looks at efforts to address the growing maternal health crisis within Rhode Island. Joining me now to talk about this three-part series, Stacy Waters, executive producer of The Risk of Giving Birth. Stacy, thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Brianna Medina, a producer of Rhode Island PBS and a new mother featured in the second episode of the series. Brianna, also a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You know, I, I wanted to get a sense of where the idea of sharing these stories of new mothers and their challenges came from. I mean, Stacy, how, how did the project launch? What what sparked the interest in this topic? Yeah, well, I was talking with Rhode Island PBS, and uh, they have a real interest in doing more in-depth journalism. Um, and we were talking about the issues in women's health you know, generally at first. And they started to dig into the research and realizing what um, the issues are around, particularly around maternal health in this in this country. We realized it's so much, there's so much there. It's such a, uh, it, is, it is truly a crisis. And every doctor I talk to also calls it that. So we, you know, we're not uh, exaggerating that. It, it became clear that that really needed to be just a single focus instead of trying to cover some other things in the series, though there are a lot of other women's health issues to, to cover. So yeah, we worked, I, I would say I worked very collaboratively with Rhode Island PBS in developing what we wanted to do with this. Did anything surprise you, by the way, from when you began the project as you're working on it, putting it together? I would say almost everything to realize just how serious the crisis was. Many people are, are very familiar with it. Those in healthcare are more familiar with the issues. I would also say that uh, black women are more familiar with the issues around maternal health outcomes in this country. But I was shocked by the actual numbers, by the causes of death, by the underlying, underlying causes that contribute to deaths. And not only deaths, because we are talking about maternal mortality, but also morbidity, which is complications that can lead to death. And um, that our rates of maternal morbidity um, in this country are also uh, very, very high. Brianna, you're featured in the second episode focused on Black maternal health. The second episode addresses the impact of structural racism on black women. And I just wanted you to just, if you could speak to that just a little bit and what the episode is trying to bring light to. In episode two, it's also brought to light that Serena Williams, a ton of Olympic athletes, not mentioned Beyonce, have all had complications in their pregnancy. And it the underlying factor was um, preeclampsia, 
high blood pressure, not related to preeclampsia, heart problems, um, and they're all black. All, all of these women that are highlighted in the second episode are all black women. My mother had the same exact health issues in her pregnancy, and then so did I. And so it's kind of kind of odd how, you know, everyone's just like, oh, yeah, preeclampsia, high blood pressure is a problem with the black community, but no one really seems to address it or understand why. And the second episode also does a really great job of diving deeper and how, you know, black women in particular, we walk around, we're dealing with racism, microaggressions, backhanded compliments, just just little things where we hold all of that in our bodies and that can actually manifest into our health. There's a whole lot more. It's such a, a complex issue, but I think that that's kind of where we can start to talk about it. Just briefly, the fact that you had a black OBGYN, do you think that really made a big difference? I, I do think so. I happened to meet with this black OBGYN multiple times. <laughs> and every time we would have the appointment with her, my husband and I, she was so thorough to the point that we were like, it's kind of annoying. But in hindsight, I I felt so taken care of, whereas not to you know compare, but there were some other OBGYNs that would walk in and be like, oh, you look great. Your blood pressure's great. Your weight's great. Baby's great. Okay, bye. But, you know, this one black OBGYN, without even having to say anything, would walk in the room, do a full check. It's very important that people of color enter the medical field because we need people that know us and our cultures and little things that we're, we're missing. And there's oversights that they'll know just by walking in the room, looking at us, really. Stacey, I could add on to that, Lewis. Yeah, yeah I was ahead. going to say, I, I think a key point about that um, is that Brianna felt more comfortable. She felt heard. She felt seen. She felt like someone who understood her and understood the statistics that tell us how black women are suffering uh, uh, pregnancy-related complications and deaths was in front of her listening to her. And that is so, so much of it. You know, Stacey, I wanted to look at the big picture of this issue, what the whole series is about. And it may come as a surprise to some people. I mean, we live in this modern, highly industrialized nation that we have this crisis. Why are there so many pregnancy-related deaths in this country and in Rhode Island? Why? Right. And it's a good question. And it's a really complex answer is what I found. So we try to examine it uh, you know, with with doctors Um to, to really look at that. Structural racism comes up again and again. This is, though, a fairly new idea. This was an idea in the past that was um, rejected. There has been a sea change in how uh, the medical profession is looking at the impacts of racism on a body, on the, the biological internal body. We also look at, at social determinants of health, which are the the, you know, the, the life you live, the places that you, people live, work, have their babies, work their jobs. Um, this comes up a lot, uh, Louis, in the third episode on Latina maternal health. It's a population that is faces a lot of challenges, especially with newcomers, language barriers, transportation issues, trying to navigate an incredibly complex healthcare system they're not familiar with, cultural differences uh, that really impact their health outcomes. 
Um, then there are other, you know, factors that, that kind of add on the top of this that are mothers are older now, so they come with more chronic underlying conditions. COVID played a role in a very dramatic jump from 2020 to 2021 in the death rate. They believe it did. It's piled issues. It's it's a cumulative set of issues in addition to a very complex healthcare system. Rhode Island is lucky. Mothers in Rhode Island are very lucky in that they, uh, once a woman becomes pregnant, she has health insurance. She has coverage through her pregnancy, birth, and for a year postpartum. That's a really that's really progressive. That's thanks to lawmakers in Rhode Island who have passed these measures for families and mothers. But that doesn't exist all over the country at all. So not having health care in other states, not Rhode Island, is a big issue. I've been speaking with Stacy Waters, executive producer of the documentary series called The Risk of Giving Birth, and Brianna Medina, a producer at Rhode Island PBS and a new mother who's featured in the second episode of the documentary series. Stacy, Brianna, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us on. The first episode of The Risk of Giving Birth comes out tonight at 8 p.m. More information is available at ripbs.org. We'll be back with more from The Weekly Catch in just a moment. Starting this month, the Public Radio is launching a Winter Book Club featuring authors and stories from Rhode Island and Massachusetts. From January to March, we'll kick off each month by announcing the book and the month with an author interview. We'll also be asking what you think. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or the X at The Publix Radio. We'd love for you to join us. Learn more at thepublicsradio.org slash book club. This is The Publix Radio. I'm Luis Hernandez. You're listening to The Weekly Catch. We're entering a new year and a new theater season across Rhode Island. One of the much-anticipated shows to hit the stage is at Trinity Rep. It's called La Broa, referring to Broad Street. It's an original production inspired by the stories of Latinos in Rhode Island, collected through the local oral history project Nuestras Raices. The show takes place at the fictional Doña Rosas Market on La Broa, where we hear the stories of the Latin immigrants who have made Providence home. Joining me now is the director of the play, Tatiana Marie Carlo. Tatiana Marie, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. Hi, hi. I'm so happy to be here. It's called La Broa. That's, of course, referring to Broad Street in Providence. But does the whole thing focus on just Broad Street, this one little area, or more? We focus on Providence, Broad Street, and then Central Falls. We looked at the communities in which there are the largest demographic demographics of Latina people, and that being Providence and Central Falls. At the time of the writing, I believe that over 40% in Providence and over 70% in Central Falls of Latina folks. Is the play in English or Spanish or bilingual? What, what, what's it like? The play is in both languages. I would say it leans towards English, but definitely there are portions of the play that are in Spanish. What's been like for you as the director in putting this uh, performance together? Uh, something that's been very much anticipated and it's been in the works for years. My goal in being a theater maker, back to my days at Micro Theater where we met, was bilingual theater. And I think that Bilingual theater allows us the opportunity to reach more people and also bring generations of families together. When my grandparents were alive, 
They didn't speak very much English. And my cousins, because assimilation used to mean survival, my cousins don't necessarily have the language in the same way. And we were able collectively together to watch a piece of theater and everyone understand what is happening. And it's been my mission, my personal goal to do that, to make bilingual plays. And I've been doing that for the past, I want to say, since 2014. I've been doing, um, wait, is that 10 years? Oh, my God. <laughs> We're showing our age. Please, I know, that's crazy. Your experience now being here in Providence, a, lo- a little longer than I've been here, is there a thirst in the Latin community for more theater? Big time. I mean, we have amazing theaters like ECAS, who is doing um, Spanish language plays and Rhode Island Latino Arts. We have Teatro Neverano in the summer that tours through Rhode Island. I believe we're going into our um, seventh season here at Trinity Rep. So there is a hunger, there is a desire for not only Latino work, but work that is in Spanish and in English. Um, And we're seeing that based on the audiences that are coming to Trinity Rep and and the excitement around this play in particular. I think that there is 100% a like hunger for this kind of work here in Rhode Island. What's most exciting about this for you? What are you so looking forward to? I think the thing that I'm most excited about here is when I came to Rhode Island, I didn't necessarily see a lot of Latina work happening on stage. And I didn't see it at Trinity Rep. And I'm part of the company and I love them very much. But it wasn't happening at Trinity Rep in the same way that it is now. We did Sueño um, a couple years ago by Jose Rivera. And that was iconic because we had people from the community in the play. Trinity Rep's model is a company model. But then also I, I was always curious of like, how do we integrate these amazing artists that are doing Teatro Neverano in the summer who are like, working outside in the summer, in the heat, making these plays happen, how do we also translate that so that they're able to be on the main stage? And now most of the people that are in the play, we have 10 amazing performers. Most of them are Rhode Island natives or have moved here when they were young. Um, And that's the majority of the cast. And for me, I think it's important to not only have the pioneers, right, that we're talking about in the play, but the pioneers that are to be and the pioneers that are happening now, especially in the theater. And that makes me the most excited. Looking forward to the show. Really, really am. Thank you so, so much for sharing with us. And break a leg. Thank you. So excited. I've been speaking with Tatiana Marie Carlo, director of Trinity Rep's new original production, La Broa, or Broad Street. It runs from January 18th through February 18th. You can find out more information about showtimes at trinityrep.com. A disclosure, Trinity Rep is an underwriter for the Publix Radio. Artscape editor Mareva Lindo joins me now to share a few tips on what to do this week. Mareva, what you got? I have a sneak peek for the next episode of Artscape, which will feature a conversation and studio session with the Paper Moon Jazz Band. They're a really tight Providence-based quartet that plays a mix of jazz standards and Django Reinhardt. They're playing at the Farm Fresh Saturday Farmer's Market in Providence from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And Providence Restaurant Week, or Weeks, is underway right now through the 20th. January can be a slow time in the restaurant business, so it's a great way to bring in more diners and for diners to check out a couple new restaurants with a special prefix menu. The listings are at goprovidence.com. And at the Newport Art Museum, there's a cool exhibit featuring the work of Iranian-born visual artist and RISD grad Argavan Hosravi. Her work combines aspects of surrealism and Persian miniature painting and explores the role of women in both Iranian and American society. That's at the Newport Art Museum through May 5th. Food and art, it works for me. Thanks, Mareva. Thanks, Lewis. 
That's it for our show. The Weekly Catch is a production of the Publix Radio. Our editor is Murray Belindo. Our producer is James Baumgartner. Our chief content officer is Sally Isley. And our CEO and general manager is Tori Malatia. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks for listening. Thank you.